Section 4 of Chapter 22 of History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 22, Section 4. The Commons returned to their chamber and fully read the speech from the chair. A debate followed which resounded through all Christendom. That was the proudest day of Montague's life, and one of the proudest days in the history of the English Parliament. In 1798, Burke held up the proceedings of that day as an example to the statesmen whose hearts had failed them in the conflict with the gigantic power of the French Republic. In 1822, Huskisson held up the proceedings of that day as an example to a legislature which, under the pressure of severe distress, was tempted to alter the standard of value and to break faith with the public creditor. Before the House rose, the young Chancellor of the Exchequer, whose ascendancy since the ludicrous failure of the Tory scheme of finance was undisputed, proposed and carried three memorial resolutions. The first, which passed with only one muttered no, declared that the commons would support the king against all foreign and domestic enemies and would enable him to prosecute the war with vigor the second which passed not without opposition but without a division declared that the standard of money should not be altered in fineness weight or denomination the third against which not a single opponent of the government dared to raise his voice pledged the House to make good all the deficiencies of all parliamentary funds established since the King's accession. The task of framing an answer to the royal speech was entrusted to a committee exclusively composed of Whigs. Montague was chairman, and the eloquent and animated address which he drew up may still be read in the journals with interest and pride. Within a fortnight, Two millions and a half were granted for the military expenditures of the approaching year, and nearly as much for the maritime expenditure. Provision was made without any dispute for 40,000 seamen. About the amount of the land force there was a division. The king asked for 87,000 soldiers, and the Tories thought that number too large. The vote was carried by 223 to 67. The malcontents flattered themselves, during a short time, that the vigorous resolutions of the commons would be nothing more than resolutions, that it would be found impossible to restore public credit, to obtain advances from the capitalists, or to wring taxes out of the distressed population, and that therefore the 40,000 seamen and the 87,000 soldiers would exist only on paper. How? who had been more cowed than was usual with him on the first day of the session, attempted, a week later, to make a stand against the ministry. The king, he said, must have been misinformed, or his majesty never would have felicitated Parliament on the tranquil state of the country. I come from Gloucester. I know that part of the kingdom well. The people are all living on alms, or ruined by paying alms. The soldier helps himself, sword in hand to what he wants there have been serious riots already and still more serious riots are to be apprehended the disappropriation of the house was strongly expressed 
several members declared that in their counties everything was quiet if gloucester were in a more disturbed state than the rest of england might not the cause be that gloucester was cursed with a more malignant and unprincipled agitator than all the rest of england could show some gloucester gentlemen took issue with howe on the facts there was no such distress they said no such discontent no such rioting as he had described in that county as in every other county the great body of the population was fully determined to support the king in waging a vigorous war till he could make an honorable peace in fact the tide had already turned from the moment at which the commons notified their fixed determination not to raise the denomination of the coin the milled money began to come forth from a thousand strong boxes and private drawers there was still pressure but that pressure was less and less felt day by day the nation though still suffering was joyful and grateful its feelings resembled those of a man who having been long tortured by a malady which has embittered his life has at least made up his mind to submit to the surgeon's knife who has gone through a cruel operation with safety and who though still smarting from the steel sees before him many years of health and enjoyment and thanks god that the worst is over within four days after the meeting of parliament there was a perceptible improvement in trade the discount on banknotes had diminished by one-third. The price of those wooden tallies, which, according to a usage handed to us from a rude age, were given as receipts for sums paid into the exchequer, had risen. The exchanges, which had during many months been greatly against England, had begun to turn. Soon the effect of the magnanimous firmness of the House of Commons was felt at every court in Europe so high indeed was the spirit of that assembly that the king had some difficulty in preventing the whigs from moving and carrying a resolution that an address should be presented to him requesting him to enter into no negotiation with france till she should have acknowledged him as king of england such an address was unnecessary the votes of the parliament had already forced on lewis the conviction that there was no chance of counter-revolution there was as little chance that he would be able to effect that compromise of which he had, in the course of the negotiations, thrown out hints. It was not to be hoped that either William or the English nation would ever consent to make the settlement of the English crown a matter of bargain with France. And even had William and the English nation been disposed to purchase peace by such sacrifice of dignity, there would have been insuperable difficulties in another quarter, James could not endure to hear the expedient which Lewis had suggested. I can bear, the exile said to his benefactor, I can bear with Christian patience to be robbed by the Prince of Orange, but I will never consent to be robbed by my own son. Lewis never again mentioned the subject. Calliers received orders to make the concession on which the peace of the civilized world depended. He and Dykvelt came together at the Hague before Baron Lillenroth, the representative of the king of sweden whose mediation the belligerent powers had accepted dykvelt informed lillenroth that the most christian king had engaged whenever the treaty of peace should be signed to recognize the prince of orange as king of great britain 
and added with a very intelligible allusion to the compromise proposed by france that the recognition would be without restriction condition or reserve calliers then declared that he confirmed in the name of his master what dykvelt had said a letter from prior containing the good news was delivered to james vernon the under-secretary of state in the house of commons the tidings ran along the benches such is vernon's expression like fire in a field of stubble a load was taken away from every heart and all was joy and triumph the whig members might indeed well congratulate each other for it was to the wisdom and resolution which they had shown in a moment of extreme danger and distress that their country was indebted for the near prospect of an honorable peace meanwhile public credit which had in the autumn sunk to the lowest point was fast reviving ordinary financiers stood aghast when they learned that more than five millions were required to make good the deficiencies of past years but montague was not an ordinary financier a bold and simple plan proposed by him and popularly called the general mortgage restored confidence new taxes were imposed old taxes were augmented or continued and thus a consolidated fund was formed sufficient to meet every just claim on the state the bank of england was at the same time enlarged by a new subscription and the regulations for the payment of the subscription were framed in such a manner as to raise the value both of the notes of the corporation and of the public securities meanwhile the mints were pouring forth the new silver faster than ever the distress which began on the fourth of may sixteen ninety six which was almost insupportable during the five succeeding months and which became lighter from the day on which the commons declared their immutable resolution to maintain the old standard ceased to be painfully felt in march sixteen ninety seven some months were still to elapse before credit completely recovered from the most tremendous shock that it has ever sustained but already the deep and solid foundation had been laid on which was to rise the most gigantic fabric of commercial prosperity that the world had ever seen the great body of the whigs attributed the restoration of the health of the state to the genius and firmness of their leader montague his enemies were forced to confess sulkily and sneeringly that every one of his schemes had succeeded the first bank subscription the second bank subscription the recoinage the general mortgage the exchequer bills but some tories muttered that he deserved no more praise than a prodigal who stakes his whole estate at hazard and has a run of good luck england had indeed passed safely through a terrible crisis and was the stronger for having passed through it but she had been in imminent danger of perishing and the minister who had exposed her to that danger deserved not to be praised but to be hanged others admitted that the plans which were popularly attributed to montague were excellent but denied that those plans were montague's the voice of detraction however was for a time drowned by the loud applauses of the parliament and the city the authority which the chancellor of the exchequer exercised in the house of commons was unprecedented and unrivalled in the cabinet his influence was daily increasing 
he had no longer a superior at the board of treasury in consequence of fenwick's confession the last tory who held a great and efficient office in the state had been removed and there was at length a purely whig ministry it had been impossible to prevent reports about that confession from getting abroad the prisoner indeed had found means of communicating with his friends and had doubtless given them to understand that he had said nothing against them and much against the creatures of the usurper william wished the matter to be left to the ordinary tribunals and was most unwilling that it should be debated elsewhere but his counsellors better acquainted than himself with the temper of large and divided assemblies were of opinion that a parliamentary discussion though perhaps undesirable was inevitable it was in the power of a single member of either house to force on such a discussion and in both houses there were members who some from a sense of duty some from mere love of mischief were determined to know whether the prisoner had as it was rumored brought grave charges against some of the most distinguished men in the kingdom if there must be an inquiry it was surely desirable that the accused statesman should be the first to demand it there was however one great difficulty the whigs who formed the majority of the lower house were ready to vote as one man for the entire absolution of russell and shrewsbury had no wish to put a stigma on marlborough who was not in place and therefore excited little jealousy but a strong body of honest gentlemen as wharton called them could not by any management be induced to join in a resolution acquitting godolphin to them godolphin was an eyesore all the other tories who in the earlier years of william's reign had borne a chief part in the direction of affairs had one by one been dismissed nottingham trevor leeds were no longer in power pembroke could hardly be called a tory and had never been really in power but godolphin still retained his post at whitehall and to the men of the revolution it seemed intolerable that one who had sate at the council board of charles and james and who had voted for a regency should be the principal minister of finance those who felt thus had learned with malicious delight that the first lord of the treasury was named in the confession about which all the world was talking and they were determined not to let slip so good an opportunity of ejecting him from office on the other hand everybody who had seen fenwick's paper and who had not in the drunkenness of factious animosity lost all sense of reason and justice must have felt that it was impossible to make a distinction between two parts of that paper and to treat all that related to shrewsbury and russell as false and all that related to godolphin as true this was acknowledged even by wharton who of all public men was the least troubled by scruples or by shame if godolphin had steadfastly refused to quit his place the whig leaders would have been in a most embarrassing position but a politician of no common dexterity undertook to extricate them from their difficulties in the art of reading and managing the minds of the men sunderland had no equal and he was as had been during several years desirous to see all the great posts in the kingdom filled by whigs by his skilful management godolphin was introduced to go into the royal closet 
and to request permission to retire from office, and William granted that permission with a readiness by which Godolphin was much more surprised than pleased. One of the methods employed by the Whig Junto, for the purpose of instituting and maintaining through all the ranks of the Whig party a discipline never before known, was the frequent holding of meetings of members of the House of Commons. Some of those meetings were numerous, others were select, the larger were held at the Rose, a tavern frequently mentioned in the political pasquinades of that time, the smaller at Russell's in Covent Garden, or at Summers in Lincoln's Infields. On the day on which Godolphin resigned his great office two select meetings were called. In the morning the place of assembly was Russell's house. In the afternoon there was a fuller muster at the Lord's Keeper's. Fenwick's confession, which till that time had probably been known only by rumor to most of those who were present, was read. The indignation of the hearers was strongly excited, particularly by one passage, of which the sense seemed to be that not only Russell, not only Shrewsbury, but the great body of the Whig party was, and had long been, at heart, Jacobite. The fellow insinuates, it was said, that the assassination plot itself was a Whig scheme. The general opinion was that such a charge could not be lightly passed over. There must be a solemn debate and decision in Parliament. The best course would be that the King should himself see and examine the prisoner, and that Russell should then request the royal permission to bring the subject before the House of Commons. As Fenwick did not pretend that he had any authority for the stories which he had told except mere hearsay, there could be no difficulty in carrying a resolution branding him as a slanderer, and an address to the throne requesting that he might be forthwith brought to trial for high treason. The opinion of the meeting was conveyed to William by his ministers, and he consented, though not without reluctance, to see the prisoner. Fenwick was brought into the royal closet at Kensington. A few of the great officers of state and the crown lawyers were present. Your papers, Sir John, said the king, are altogether unsatisfactory. Instead of giving me an account of the plots formed by you and your accomplices, plots of which all the details must be exactly known to you, you tell me stories, without authority, without date, without place, about noblemen and gentlemen with whom you do not pretend to have any intercourse. In short, your confession appears to be a contrivance intended to screen those who are really engaged in designs against me, and to make me suspect and discard those in whom I have good reason to place confidence. If you look for any favor from me, give me, this moment and on this spot, a full and straightforward account of what you know of your own knowledge. Fenwick said that he was taken by surprise and asked for time. No, sir, said the king. For what purpose can you want time? You may indeed want time if you mean to draw up another paper like this, but what I require is a plain narrative of what you have yourself done and seen, and such a narrative you can give, if you will, without pen and ink. Then Fenwick positively refused to say anything. Be it so, said William, I will neither hear you nor hear from you any more. Fenwick was carried back to his prison. 
he had at his audience shown a boldness and determination which surprised those who had observed his demeanor he had ever since he had been in confinement appeared to be anxious and dejected yet now at the very crisis of his fate he had braved the displeasure of the prince whose clemency he had a short time before submissively implored in a very few hours the mystery was explained just before he had been summoned to kensington he had received from his wife intelligence that his life was in no danger that there was only one witness against him that she and her friends had succeeded in corrupting goodman end of section four Recording by Hugh Gillis.